From NASA sending astronauts to the moon to billionaires launching themselves into space, there's something about the cosmos that inspires people to attempt the impossible. None of this would be possible if it weren't for a group of engineers who risked it all for the sake of blowing stuff up. From LAS Studios, listen to LA Made, Blood, Sweat, and Rockets, available now wherever you get your podcasts. So I I went to jail 18 times between the ages of like 18 and 21. I think 21 was the last time I went to jail. People thought, you know, I should have been dead by now, honestly, you know, because of the way I was like running around on the streets. But somehow, you know, I was able to pull through and get it together. Um, I I mean, I never in my life thought that this was something I was going to do, you know, and started this journey when I was turned 40. So, you know, it's kind of crazy. This is Where the Internet Lives, a show about the unseen world of data centers. I'm Stephanie Wong, and I'm your guide to the people and places that make up the internet. This season, we're exploring how data centers change the world around them in surprising and transformative ways. In this episode, how one woman's personal transformation led to a dream career in the trades. I am Sarah Hess. I am a union laborer. Um, I've been doing it for about a year and a half. I'm getting ready to be third term tomorrow, which means more money. (laughs) Sarah is one of just over a million union workers in the U.S. construction industry. It's a nearly $2 trillion sector responsible for our homes, schools, roads, offices, and our data centers. About 90% of the construction workforce is male, a number that hasn't changed much over the past three decades. You know, even when I was a kid, you didn't see women on a job site. And if you did, it was, you know, they were cleaning or, you know, standing outside. Sarah is one of the women changing that dynamic. As a union laborer who graduated from the Oregon Trades Women Apprenticeship Program, she spent the last year and a half learning the ins and outs of the construction trade in hopes of becoming an experienced tradesperson. It's a long way from the path she started on. Well, I mean, I I was a street kid. I, you know, hustled people for money. You know, I was a drug addict. So I started using drugs when I was 13. And, you know, drank alcohol, used drugs, you know, the whole, like, street life. You know, ripping people off. You know, I caught charges when I was uh, 19. I caught a burglary charge because I broke into somebody's house and stole nine guns. Sarah went to jail more than a dozen times over the course of a few years. In the midst of it all, she got pregnant, but lost the child in almost a full term. And she couldn't stay clean. She began to think that she had no other options. If you would ask me at one point in time in my life, oh, you know, are you ever going to do anything? And it's like, no, (laughs) I'm going to be a drug addict. (laughs) You know, that's it. It took another trip to jail to set her on a different course. The last time I got, the last time I went to jail... They gave me early release to treatment. And I was like, no, I I can find, I can do it on my own, knowing I was going to go get high again, you know. And they rolled me up and put me in treatment anyways. And then when I I got to treatment, I started to learn, like, how to love myself and how to be, you know, a good person. You know, and then was clean for a couple years and then um, got pregnant with my son. 
And I was like, no, I'm I'm not messing around anymore, you know. And then went and got my GED through probation and parole. And um, then went to college, like, when my, my kid was, like, six months old. It was a massive shift for Sarah. In just a few years, she had gone from being an addict living on the streets to studying social work and parenting her young son. She spent the next six years putting her studies and life experience into practice. I worked with at-risk youth, um, like, you know, hard-to-place foster kids. I worked with men that were schizoaffective, meaning they were bipolar and schizophrenic, um, coming out of prison. I worked in a detox uh, facility. Um, I've worked in residential treatment. So, yeah, I've had a wide variety of different experiences in social work. And it did help me, you know, but it was really rewarding to see that I was, like, helping other people. The only problem is, is, though, is that social work doesn't pay enough money. Sarah wanted more. She wanted to buy a house for her and her son. She wanted to travel. And getting there on her social worker's salary seemed impossible. But scrolling through social media one day, something caught her eye. Posts from people she knew who had trained with Oregon tradeswomen. And I, like, kept seeing people you know, I'm going on this trip and I'm doing this. And and these are people that I've known that have went through Oregon Tradeswomen. And, you know, now they're launching their careers and everything. They're going on trips. I'm like, I could barely pay my rent. <laughs> you know, and you're going to go on trips and everything. So it was like, okay, well, what do I need to do to, you know, sign me up for that? So, um, I, I mean, I never in my life thought that this was something I was going to do, you know, and started this journey when I was turned 40. The eight-week pre-apprenticeship program run by the nonprofit Oregon Tradeswomen prepares women from different backgrounds to enter the trades. Last year, Google gave $150,000 to the organization to diversify the construction industry. It's a part of a multi-state effort at Google to support programs that elevate tradeswomen, some of whom will eventually build data centers. Sarah signed up for Oregon Tradeswomen. Soon, she transitioned from emotionally taxing social work into physically demanding construction work. Well, I mean, physically, I feel worn. You know, I come home and I'm like, I take an Epsom salt bath every day. So what made you decide to take that leap? Well, I was like, man, I can't pay my bills. It's like I'm taking care of three people and, you know, I'm barely making it. And I was like, screw it. Let me, you know, why don't I try it? What does your typical day look like? I could push broom, I could help pour concrete. I'm asbestos certified, so I can go into a building and clear asbestos. I can order concrete at this point in time if I needed to. I mean, it's just a wide variety of different things. Like uh, laborers, it's like we do everything. We start the job and we finish the job. So we get there before any of the other contractors get there you know, set up everything, get everybody thing ready for everybody. And then when the job's over, you still got laborers there, like cleaning up and finishing up the rest of the job. So we do a lot of everything, really. As Sarah's physical stamina grew, so did her resolve to build a career in the trades. Sarah liked the work and the training, but then everything came to a screeching halt. And I was seven weeks in, I was a week away from graduation and then found out I had brain cancer. So I was at the Carpenters Union and lifting like 16 feet, two by fours on my shoulder. And then the next day, like half of my body went numb. And I'm like, you know, I've got arthritis and everything else going on in my body already. So I just pinched a nerve. 
I went to the hospital because I'm diabetic, and I'm like, well, maybe I could be having a stroke, but I doubt it. And, you know, they did an MRI, and they came back and was like, you have a brain tumor. What was your reaction in the room when you found out you had a brain tumor? It was scary. Um, I was like, there's no way this could be happening to me. But, you know, like, I've ever overcome a lot of things. Like, I overcame drug addiction, and I've overcome, you know, being a street kid. And, you know, I've overcome a lot of things in my life. So I was like, okay, I can do this. I can overcome this. Sarah was just one week from graduating from the Oregon Tradeswomen program when she got her cancer diagnosis. It had completely derailed her. But the whole time she was battling cancer, the only thing she could think about was getting back to work. She felt like she'd found her calling in the trades, and she wasn't done yet. So like six months after I found out I had brain cancer, I went through Oregon Tradeswomen again and did the eight-week class again and graduated And I was set on being a carpenter. I was like, I'm going to be a carpenter. I love building with stuff. I like cutting wood. I love everything about it. And then I went to the laborers hall, and they let me drive around on the forklift. And this gets here and a bunch of other things. And I was like, oh, man, this is fun. I want to do this. The Oregon Tradeswomen program has an 87% placement rate for its graduates. Many of the women who go through the program have stories similar to Sarah's. And most of the women are placed in well-paying positions with health benefits and retirement programs. It's the kind of job security Sarah needed. I've only been out of work for like a month once. And ever since then, it's like I've, I've constantly been working. So that's been really good, nice, you know. And at one point you worked on a data center, right? What were you doing there? So, like, I had to clean the server towers, like, make sure that there was, it was, like, white glove clean and, like, making sure that, like, all the walls and everything were spotless. So, that was hard. Cleaning servers wasn't quite her thing. Sarah much prefers the buzz of big construction sites, places where she feels like she's a part of a team and getting dirty. But even on those job sites, the team dynamic is different for a woman. What is it like being one of the few females on the job site? Um, You know, I've dealt with some different kinds of stuff. Most of the guys are pretty cool. They're nice to me, you know, but there's been some times where it's been like, oh, what are you even doing here? And there's some old timers that that are still like in the state of mind of like, why is a woman even on the job site? You know, I just like I have to brush it off because it's like if I let that get to me all day, I'd be screwed. Basically, you know, like, yeah, well, we're women and we're here. So deal with it. Sarah is naturally resilient. She also attributes some of her strength to the women she met through last year's Tradeswomen Build Nations Conference in Las Vegas. It was her first time attending the annual gathering of more than 3,000 women in the trades, and she built a strong support network. Really, that conference changed my life in ways I can't even explain because it's like just the energy and knowing that there's people out there that are like you, that that are here to support you, like almost makes you want to cry because it was just so, like, amazing. You know, it's kind of like a family, you know what I mean? I I met really cool people that I still talk to, to you know. I have friends that I made in my first time around in Oregon Trades Women that are out there, you know, in their different trades. People that checked on me when I had cancer. And then people from Oregon Trades Women, they sent me flowers when I came home from the hospital, you know, so it's like a family. You you start to, to gain like a family. Those bonds meant everything to Sarah. 
She no longer feels like that lost, addicted teenager living on the streets, bouncing in and out of jail. With the help of the Oregon Tradeswomen program, she built a strong, stable career, and she wants to pass it on. My ultimate goal is I would like to be an apprentice coordinator at my hall. Like, I want to help new apprentices through their process. Many people who have gone through addiction or illness or struggle come out of it with this deep sense of gratitude. So how did your tough experiences shape your perspective? I feel like I'm just constantly learning. Because I've gone through these things, like, it does help me to help other people or to you know, be a little bit more centered in some ways because, like, I've struggled. I know what it's like. Through the worst parts of her life, Sarah always found a way to push forward. It's a quality that hasn't changed since her teens, and it's now guiding her career. So I've always been kind of tough in different ways. Um, Whether it be, I gotta be tough on the streets or I gotta be tough on the job site, you know. I just wish I would have gotten it together, you know, earlier on. It's never too late to start. Nope, that's what I tell people, too. I'm like, man, if I can do this, you can do it, too. Like, it's, I'm changing career paths at 40. It doesn't matter. You can change anytime you want. Just have to want to do it. Take the leap. Sarah Hess is a union laborer and a graduate of the Oregon Tradeswomen. If you want to learn more about the Oregon Tradeswomen program, click through the link in the show notes. Where the Internet Lives is produced by Postscript Media in collaboration with Google. Our theme music was written by Echo Finch. Additional music came from Epidemic Sounds, Blue Dot Sessions, and Echo Finch. You can subscribe to the show on Google Podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you access your shows. And please give us a rating if you like the series. I'm Stephanie Wong. Thank you for listening. I've been wondering something lately. Why does it seem like once you become a billionaire, when you're one of those disruptor CEO mavericks, the only thing left to do to test your genius is to build yourself a rocket ship? And I speak for all of us here at SpaceX when I say we could not be more excited to finally be sending humans to the International Space Station. There's Elon Musk. I cannot emphasize this enough. We must make life sustainably multiplanetary. There's Jeff Bezos, who stepped down as CEO of Amazon to focus on Blue Origin, his rocket company, and sent William Shatner to the edge of space, not to mention Richard Branson and Virgin Galactic. So what is it with these guys? Why the middle-aged pivot to rocketry? I think there's something about outer space, the cosmos, that inspires people to attempt the impossible. But here's what most people don't know. None of this would have happened. No billionaires launching themselves into the wild blue yonder. No moon landing either. If it weren't for a group of men in Pasadena, California, back in the 1930s. They risked it all for the sake of blowing shit up and changing the world. Specialization complete. Affirmative. they would come to be known as the Suicide Squad. Allow me to introduce them. Chen Shu Shen, the mathematician. And he would come to the classroom, he would just, those students obviously ask questions, and Chen would say, I would suggest you to drop off my class. That's it, simple. 
Frank Molina, the mastermind. I would say it was kind of his dream to establish unmanned exploration of space. And lastly, Jack Parsons, the one about whom I have reservations. Parsons was perhaps the most, <laughs> I would say, unusual one. Jack always wanted to set off rockets and explosions. He wanted to be out there in the field and making things happen. That's the crew. They were the perfect storm. In the 1930s, if you said you wanted to work on rockets, colleagues would ostracize you, financiers would laugh in your face, and everyone would assume you were going to accidentally blow yourself up, which was a fair assumption. Frequent explosions at Caltech are actually how this team earned its name, the Suicide Squad. But far from being a joke, the squad's achievements led to the founding of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Southern California, which has landed rovers on Mars. So let me say this. If you think Branson and Musk have earned their reputation as eccentric wild cards, just wait till you hear the Suicide Squad story. There will be satanic ceremonies and some practices known as sex magic. Which is using sexual intercourse and, and orgasm in rituals to harness energy towards a specific goal. There will also be historical figures who get screwed over and unfairly forgotten. Women have been a part of every major milestone and every mundane task in the history of aerospace, and their stories are not often told or remembered. There will be a corrosive and widespread communist scare. The then director of JPL, Louis Dunn, walked into an FBI office and said, I think this is spying at JPL. And ultimately, there will be a suspicious death. There were actually two explosions, one right after another. It shook the city with shockwaves. Test telephone switch to arm, arm light on. Switching command to internal. I'm M.G. Lord. Discover the mad origins of aerospace. Blood, Sweat, and Rockets, the first season of L.A. Made, a new podcast coming soon from L.A.'s studios. Thank you.